The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. If you have your Bible this morning, we are going to be in the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews. We're just doing three verses this morning, and uh, if you've been with us the last several weeks, you may recall that we're in a series called Greater Than, and we try and pick a topic or a, a phrase every week, and this week that we are greater than ourselves, and we'll unpack that as we go through the sermon. But I want to tell you that, just to give you an overview of the next four weeks, it's hard to believe, but Easter Sunday is in three weeks. Uh, March is almost over, and in three weeks, April will almost be over. It's, it's just that time of year where everything flies by. Summer will be here before you know it. So the next three weeks, just to give you an outline, we're going to be in Hebrews 4, 11 through 13 this morning. Then we're going to finish up Hebrews 4 next week. Then after that, um, which would, I guess would be Palm Sunday, we don't celebrate that officially, but Palm Sunday in the calendar is going to be the start of Hebrews 5. And in three weeks from there is Easter. Pastor Nelson is going to be preaching that week. So we're, we're out of town to a, a, a little shindig up in Boston. So I'll let you figure out what that is. But uh, we're, we're going to be at the Boston Marathon that weekend, and you are gracious to let us do that. We are having a Good Friday service. It's on your bulletin. We'll be having a, a regular Sunday. Here's the thing. Here's my pastoral thing before we get it. Don't forget, every Sunday you celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen? So Easter, it's important. Don't get me wrong. It's on the calendar. We do all fun things with it. But reality is, it's just a regular Sunday because guess what? You get to have the party 51 weeks out of the year when everyone else kind of puts it away for a year. So don't bring out Jesus from the grave or on the cross once a year. We do it every week. Amen? So as you come, we would invite you to invite people. But I'll be honest. The one of the least, you know what the least attended Sunday every year of our church is? Easter Sunday. Isn't that crazy? So if you want to be here Easter Sunday, bring someone with you. Who is one person that you could bring with you that does not know Jesus Christ? You might be amazed that they would say yes to come. It's going to be a very straightforward service. Nelson will be planning it, and uh, we'll look forward to it. Pastor Brian, wherever you are, tur- your shirt, brother, blends in with the, the, the chairs behind you, your turquoise shirt. So we love you, but it does. All that to say, we are excited, and you should praise the Lord as one more aside before we stand and read our scripture. Guys, we are going to be starting chapter 5 of a 13-chapter book, three months into the study. And all God's people said, amen. Would you join us in standing this morning, if you're able, in honor of God's word? If you are visiting with us, it's a long-standing joke that we take our time through books, but Hebrews, we're, we're, we've got a pretty good cadence and pace going on right now, so it's, we're, we're getting there. This is actually the shortest sermon of verses that we've done in Hebrews the next couple weeks. Just a couple verses here, a couple verses there. All right, you got your Bible with you. Let's actually go up to verse 1, and let's read our way down to verse 13. Hear God's word this morning. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For he who has believed entered that rest, as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. Verse 4, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. 
as an aside, I love that he doesn't quote chapter and verse. He just says, somewhere it's there. You can relate to that. And again, in the passage, he said, verse 5, they shall not enter my rest. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it, those who formerly received the good news, however, failed to enter because of disobedience. And again, he appoints a certain day today, saying, verse 7, through David, so long afterwards, and the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So, verse 9, then, it remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. We'll pick it up in verse 11 where we're starting the sermon. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. And I know you know this verse coming up. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword or two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and spirit of joints and of morrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature, verse 13, is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. May God bless the reading of his word. Will you pray with me? After we pray, we'll be seated and start our sermon from there. Let's bow our heads together. Father, thank you so much for this. We're reminded where we have been the last few weeks of this kind of parentheses in the book, this evangelistic parentheses in the book of Hebrews, Lord, where he has challenged those in that congregation, wherever it was, to consider whether they have truly come to Christ. And as we enter these three verses today, very familiar verses to us, that same theme applies. Father, may you stir those without Christ here to know Christ. But for those of us who do, may we not take for granted the very gift that was of immeasurable cost and immeasurable sacrifice. We thank you, Lord. We pray all these things today. Give us wisdom now in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Thank you so much. Well, as we prepare, and I don't want to make this about me, but this is an illustration I hope that makes a point. As we prepare to leave in a, a few Fridays to go to Boston, our kids are, of course, asking all questions about the plane. Do you have to buckle up? Can you use the bathroom? Can, you, can I, like, stay on the wing of the plane and fly out there with everybody? I mean, anything you got, our kids have probably asked about a plane. But one thing we've all decided at home is to fly on a plane, you actually have to be in the plane. Would you agree with that? That's pretty straightforward. To actually get to somewhere on a plane, you can't take a car. Well, you could if you're in the Army. You could get in a Jeep that's, you know, locked into a plane, but that's not normal life. Most normal people, they get on a plane, and they get off the stairs and go on the stairs, get off the stairs and go on the stairs, and that's what it is. To get in an airplane, you actually have to get in an airplane. You came for all the right reasons this morning, didn't you? You didn't know that, did you? But when you're off of an airplane, you're off of an airplane. You can't be on an airplane and off of an airplane at the same time unless you have really long legs. But to fly in an airplane, you actually have to get in, buckle up, and let them shut the door. Now, for some of you, I am just randomly curious. How many of you are scared of flying? And admit it, and you're okay to raise your hand. Nobody's scared. A couple people, thank you for your honesty. Most people do not like flying if they're really honest because of the takeoff and especially the landing. If, you, if you've been there, you understand that. But you're either on or you're off. You're either on or you're off. 
And as we prepare to go to Boston, that's something we've had to talk about this. And this is kind of the theme of the book of Hebrews, isn't it? You're either in or you're out. You're either fully committed with one foot, both feet rather, with Christ, or you're in both feet of the world. You cannot straddle, as it is, the world in Jesus Christ, just as you cannot straddle getting on a plane in that same way. And so the question is, is Jesus superior to everything in your life? That's what the book of Hebrews has been arguing. Is he worth all you have, or will you come up short? Will you get split-legged, if you will, when it comes to things about Christ? And so we have been in this big parentheses the last several weeks, but the writer has been urging them to come all the way to Jesus Christ to be saved. And that's why the book of Revelation, you'll see this up on the screen, reminds us, as Jesus said, look, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the First, and the Last, and you know the rest of it, don't you? The beginning and the end. Look, we need to be all in or all out with Jesus. That is the bottom line. We must be all in with Jesus Christ. There's no fence straddling. There's no compromise. There's no playing all ends into the middle. It's all or nothing. But Pastor, I, I don't want it to be all in for Jesus. Then you're all out of Jesus. Well, what if, no, you're either all in or you're all out. That is the bottom line. And so the question remains this morning, where is God calling you, Christian, in your life? Just go all in for him. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's your, your decisions, your worry, your sin, whatever it is. You have something in your life that you need to decide to go all in for Jesus Christ. Some of you this morning, though, it's to commit your life to Christ for the first time. And I've told you this the last several weeks, but this is one of the most, if not the most, evangelistic book in the New Testament. It has high and mighty theology that's going to make your head spin in a few weeks, especially as you get into chapters 6 through 9. But I want to remind you at the base of it all is a commitment to Christ. You are either in or you are out. There's none of this, I go to, to a church service at 4 p.m. on a Saturday and go rung amok with everyone in Westport and wherever else you go these days, Power and Light District, and, and smash myself up, and then I come back in the next week and, oh, God, forgive me. Look, you're either in or you're out. You're either on the plane or you're not on the plane. And that is the argument. That's the big idea this morning. We won't live out the will of God any more than we know the word of God. As the writer of Hebrews is going to continue to argue, the more you know about the word and the God of the word, the more you will want to see the word lived out in your life. Because that is how you tell whether or not you are in the faith or out of the faith. And I want to remind you this morning that, that it is, you are not saved today, Christian, because of how committed you are to Jesus. You are saved if you're saved today because of how committed he was to you on that cross. And one day, all the masks are going to fall. All the self... I'm, no, I'm not talking about COVID-19. Not those masks. All the masks are going to come off. We are laid bare, verse 13, before him. Every self-interest, self-protection will be uh, laid bare before his blazing hot furnace of our lives before him. So, Christian, this morning, can I ask you, are you just doing church? Are you just going through life? No matter your age or situation, are you really ready to be all in for Jesus Christ? Jesus is committing to making us new not comfortable. And this life is not going to be easy. Jesus said, take up your cross, but you can never be nominally committed to Jesus Christ. You're either, you're in or you're out. That's the question this morning. Three things that we see, three aspects of God's work in the 
in our hearts through his word to make us know that he is greater than ourselves. Either we are in him or we're out of him. We're all in for him or we're not in for him. And I want to look at these this morning. You can see the outline, the notes, if you're visiting, are on the back of the page. You can take notes. The fill in the blanks will be up on the screen. But that's what I want to ask you this morning. Is your faith growing? Is it stagnant? Or do you simply fly by the seat of your pants every day with Jesus and hope that someday your plane lands with him and you with him? First thing I want you to see, the first work of God in our hearts as we seek to be all in for Christ is I want you to see how the God works through his word in the final invitation, the final invitation. Look at verse 11 and read that again. He says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so no one may fall by some sort of disobedience, by the same sort of disobedience. Now, you remember that we've been talking the last several weeks that the writer of Hebrews has used those uh, rebel rousing, uh, uh, just crazy folks out in the desert as an example. And what he has told them is, is that there is rest only in Jesus Christ. He's told them that that rest only comes by faith in Christ. But you notice here, verse 11, he gives them one more invitation. He says, therefore, based on everything we've talked about, that you cannot will yourself to heaven, that you can't be good enough to go to heaven, that it's Christ alone, he's superior to all, strive to enter that rest. That word strive literally means literally means make haste in light of coming danger. You know, our kids this morning, when we looked at the weather, we saw that on Tuesday night, there's a chance of storms. And Brother Jeff's favorite phrase that I just like to ignore, uh, make him mad about all the time is, Jeff, we're told on Tuesday to be weather aware. He hates that phrase. And on Tuesday night, it could thunderstorm, it could tornado, it could hail, it could rain, it could do any of those things. But the word that is told here is very much what the weather people are telling us to watch for on Tuesday night. We are to be aware of coming danger. That's what that word strive means. Strive means that you are doing everything you can to get out of what is coming before you. And in what we know of the Bible, what's coming is, is there's coming a day of judgment. Do everything in your power to strive to enter that rest. Well, what, do you, what does this mean? Well, it does not mean that you can will yourself into heaven. It does not mean that you can be sincere enough or try hard enough or be good enough or get baptized, take communion, go through confirmation, get dunked 5,000 times to get to heaven. You are saved by the one who has striven, is that a word? Who has strived for you once and for all. And what is his name, church? Jesus. We are to strive to enter that rest. In other words, it's not just head knowledge, it's a choice of the will. We believe that you make a real choice when you come to Jesus, but we also believe that God himself directs you in his sovereign plan to that end. So when he says that let us strive to enter that rest, we are fleeing from the wrath to come. Did you know there's a coming storm which no weather forecaster will ever miss? There's a storm coming that'll be greater than any tsunami, tornado, earthquake, whatever else, um, glaciers falling down, blizzards, whatever you can do. And that storm coming is the day that we all stand in judgment before Jesus Christ himself. You can imagine why he says, let us strive, let us flee, let us do everything we can to enter that rest. He says labor, you see that phrase there, labor or strive. It's literally a soul searching, a self-examination. 
It's coming before the Lord and asking the question, am I really in Jesus Christ? Am I on his plane or am I not? Am I in Christ, forgiven, justified, clothed in his righteousness, or am I just appearing like I am? Now, it's not hold on, but it's know you're being kept. It's, it's not strive to do the best you can, but strive to enter the race or, or the rest. We will finish our race because Jesus finished his work. Christian, I want you to note there, though, what the end of the phrase says. He says at the end of that last phrase, he says, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. You know, we often look around and say, man, I'd never do that. How could that guy have done that? I, I would never be tempted in that way. I could never sin like that. Well, I'm better than this guy. I mean, I, I don't go out and drink and chew and smoke and go with girls that do or whatever that old phrase was back in the 50s and 60s. But yet in your heart of hearts, God sees sin that no one else may see publicly. But he sees all and he knows all. And the warning here is that as that generation in the desert left and pulled short of crossing over, don't be like them. Come to God. Come all in for God. Be all in on his side so that you may not fall. Luke 13, 24, and this is not up on the screen, but it says, Jesus said, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able to. Jesus pushed relentlessly from the theoretical to the personal. Striving, not falling in the same disobedience, requires effort, but it's not earning your salvation. It's discipline, but you don't deserve it because you are a sinner. It is grace that creates saints. No one shuffles through the gate. We are to repent and let go of the world and let go of self and be content in Christ. And Amy will put this up on the screen. The gospel is more than an open invitation or a free offer. It is an imperative command that demands our obedient faith in Jesus Christ. Look, every other religion says do more. Every other religion Buddha said, strive that you might hit nirvana. That's not what we're talking about. If you are seeing in these verses that this is a thing that he says that you have to be good enough to get to heaven, you're missing the whole point of what's being said. He is saying that we cannot be saved ourselves. He's saying that Jesus himself is the one that deserves all of our faith. But at the same time, Jesus offers this one invitation. Come. Come all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come all you who are thirsty, and I will give you drink. The point is, is that we are to strive to enter the rest of the Lord, but we are to work hard at not working to earn a relationship with God. Huh? Something like that. Christian, you are saved only by Christ, but the fact that you know Christ should show the world that you are working to please him because he gave his life for you. That is the final invitation. So this morning, if you're here and you don't know Jesus, if you seriously, I mean this humbly, if you died today because you had a heart attack about whatever happened in your life going on and you passed away, do you know for certain you're going to heaven? If you don't, find us afterwards. Myself, Pastor Nelson, the green shirt, the turquoise shirt, Brian, who blends in with the chairs, whatever, it is that important. That is the faithful invitation. And I want to remind you today that the gospel is open to all. It doesn't matter if you're red, yellow, black, and white.
Christ says you are truly precious in his sight. Well, does that mean there's a sinner that's too sinful that can come to Jesus? No, everyone can. Christian, you were more sinful than you care to realize or remember before you came to Jesus, and he still took you in. May that be a motivation as we share the gospel. Jesus' invitation is to come. That's number one. Number two, as God works in our hearts to show us that, he's, that he is greater than ourselves, either all in or all out, there is a faithful revelation, the faithful revelation. We're going to camp out here for a minute. I'll be honest with you, I thought about just preaching on this verse alone. You could literally preach this verse, and, and that's a whole sermon. But we're moving through. I'm, I'm disciplining myself, trying to keep us on task and pace without going too far, too slow, whatever. But the, do you, many of you have heard this verse, and rightfully so. We often preach verse 12 as a standalone verse for the power of God's word. Amen? And we should. Everything that we're going to talk about here is stuff you know, most of y'all in this room. But this is in the context of Hebrews. I want you to see how this fits. The, it fits because the word is the one that's going to show you whether you've entered the rest in Jesus alone, by faith alone, or you have not. The word is going to do that for us. And it's familiar. You know where you stand. Romans 10, 17, faith comes by what, church? Hearing and, and hearing comes the word of Christ, the word of God, right? That's what we know. Only by the supernatural power of God can you truly come to know Christ. So I'm going to give you six things here that you'll see. Amy will put them up one at a time as you go through them. Six things, evangelistic workings of the word of God. Be reminded this morning what we have in this Bible. The first aspect he mentions there, if you have your Bible still, verse 12, he says, uh, and I lost it too. There it is. He said, for the word of God, the word of God. Let that sink in for a second. This is not Donald Trump's memoir. This is not Obama's autobiography. This is not Bush writing about himself. This is the word of God. This isn't some million, this isn't some guy who royally messed up and wrote a book about how he royally messed up and he's reformed now, so pay me money because I don't have a job anymore. I need to make some money off you. This is the word of God. Let that sink into you. The word, it's divine, is the first one. It is divine. It is his book. It's not our book. It's God's book. And you notice there at chapter 3, verse 7, as we looked at a couple weeks ago, if you have your Bible, chapter 3, verse 7, it says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, we believe the Bible is inerrant, it's infallible, it is, it is sufficient, it is, it is authoritative, it is all the words that we throw at it because it's true. And Baptist friends, I want to remind you, some of you were of this generation that fought for this. There was a time and a place where as Southern Baptists, we weren't sure whether this was the word of God or not. Can you believe that junk? We fought for this in the 70s and 80s, and we're grateful for what we now call the conservative resurgence. Not conservative politically, although that may be part, conservative theologically, because we actually believe when this, we read this, God is speaking. It is divine. And God wrote through the authors. The Bible is the word of God, completely true without error in anything it teaches. It is our standard, as we believe, for all matters of faith and practice. And I want to remind you, the Bible offends every culture. The Bible offends every person. It is an equal opportunity offender. But it is expected that it would do so because it really is the word of God. And God's not like you. God's not like me. And aren't you grateful for that? Amen? When he speaks, we listen. When he says jump, we say how high. When he says go, we should go. 
And that's what he's telling these Hebrews. Don't forget, the word I'm speaking to you is not just the preacher's words. Golly, don't listen to my words. My words go off track. You go back to the word of God. If you are visiting with us and you have been at a church where they trust the preacher's words more than the word of God, run for the high hills. This is the word of God. And church, I want to remind you that we hold this word high. We do not worship the Bible. We don't bow before it. We don't offer incense to it. We worship the God of the Bible. God, as Calvin said, has spoken to us in baby talk. And we don't know it all, but we have enough to live, as Peter says, for life and godliness. It is a faithful revelation because it is divine. Yes, well, Darren... Human authors wrote it. It's like that telephone game, right? You remember that game? You get in a big circle, and I start off and say, the Chiefs aren't going to win the Super Bowl. They traded too many people. And by the time it makes it around the circle, it's Tom Brady won the Super Bowl again, you know? The Bible is not like a game of kid telephone where the message changes all around. Yes, there were 40 authors. Yes, it was over 1,500 years, but it's a divine book. And if God can divinely hold himself together, you better believe he can hold the word together. There's no contradictions. There are hard parts, friends. Golly, there are hard parts. Last night, my wife, I was, I was pretty much passed out, and she goes, well, you're the pastor. You answer this question. In Joshua, why did, he, why did he call for the extermination order of all the people? And that's another thing. So I gave her a video and went to sleep. And let it be. But I want you to know, even in the hard parts of Scripture, it's divine. Amen? Second thing is this. It is not only the Word of God. It is living. It is living. No, we don't feed it. No, we don't water it. No, we don't have to keep it in a cage. We'll get there. But it is living. Literally in the Greek, if you look at it, living is the first word. It's literally in the Greek. The first phrase of verse 12 is living Word of God is. Living Word of God is. This is really the first phrase. We flip it in the English, but it's not a dead book. You can read other books, but the Bible by the Holy Spirit is the only book that actually reads you by God's grace. We have a pulse of God. Acts 7.38, um, Stephen says it's a living oracle. 1 Peter 1.23, it's living and abiding. So how do we make the Bible relevant? Isn't that every person? Uh, brother, I see our director of missions here, and, and, and you know from the the... the the, the last week of our newspaper, our state paper, we had 29 openings for pastors in Missouri alone. That is a record, by the way, I'm told. A record. 29 openings. And you know what? We need faithful men to come and preach the Word of God. But you know what a lot of young men my age have done? They want to be relevant, so they go and do everything other than what the Bible actually says. If you want to be relevant, then give the Word of God its living chance to actually make proof in the world. This is living the Word of God transcends times and cultures. It, it, churches are cool churches where the Bible is preached, if you want to put it that way. The Bible is more relevant than tomorrow's newspaper and is more reliable than tomorrow's sunrise. That is what we believe. Truth is always up to date and relevant. Now, you may have a table. You may have a chair. You may have a pulpit. You may pound it. You may sweat yourself silly up here. I don't care how you preach it. Just preach the Word of God. That's really, at the end of the day, what matters. Because it is inexhaustible. We don't make the Bible relevant. We cannot make the Bible what it already is. We simply show its relevancy for daily life. It's a living word. Number three, it's powerful. Your Bible may have the word active. The word of God is living and active. That word active is the same word we get energy, but the word of God is like a powerful uh, uh, cage lion. 
you, you, the more you poke the bear, the lion, the angrier it gets, but the Word of God can bust out of that cage anytime it wants to. It just simply needs to be let loose. Isaiah 55, 10 and 11 says, For as the rain and snow come down from heaven and don't return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout and giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, God says, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. It shall accomplish for which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Church, the greatest weapon we have in the fight for souls this side of heaven is sharing the word of God. You can have every strategy, you can have every relevancy, you can have every cool-looking young pastor, old pastor. You know, old pastors don't just change their, their shoes and their haircuts to make themselves more relevant. You knew that, right? That's, that's a joke, by the way. We don't need it. Look, we may, we may change how we do things in a service, but this is never going to change. This is the power of the Word of God. Look, when I preach, I stand in a fool's errand every week, because unless God moves, I have nothing. I'm just a blabber of, of, of things. And that's why we don't talk about today's news. That's why we don't need to give you updates on the Chiefs. That's why if you want that, go turn on your TV or your radio or whatever, your smartphone. We come for the Word of God. It is living, it is energized, and it is powerful. It is also number four, it is cutting edge. Cutting edge. Do you see that phrase there? It is sharper than any two-edged sword. I really looked this up. I thought I understood this, but literally in the Greek, it means all edge. Uh, it, it, you know, sometimes we have a blunt side of a knife, and sometimes there's a sharp side of a knife. But, of course, in those days, the best sword you had was that if you were swinging a sword, well, you can't always get them on your left side, and you can't always get them on your right side. Both sides had to be sharp, and that's what the Word of God is. There's no blunt edge. It's razor sharp. You can harden yourself, but it will cut inside your soul to show what it's really worth. You can say, I don't want God, but regardless whether you accept it, God is still forming and cutting and, and doing that. And that sounds masoch masochistic. Is that the right word? That's not what it's about. We're talking spiritually here, not physically. That's why we don't preach Dr. Phil from the pulpit. Is Dr. Phil even still around? I don't know. I don't watch TV and don't have a TV, so you have to tell me. Whoever the blabber is, that's why not every Facebook post that we share and see and every social media thing that crosses us, we don't have to get behind because oftentimes it's the same thing repackaged. There is nothing new under the sun. But this book, you know as well as I do, church, you can read it a thousand times and every time you walk away saying, how in the world did I miss that? And Lord, I'm so sorry I didn't follow you in that moment. Because it cuts, it separates. It, to put it bluntly, it can either save you or it can damn you. It can bless you or it can blast you, literally. Or as the old Puritans used to say, the old dead guys, the word of God will either comfort the afflicted or it will afflict the comfortable. This is the power of the word of God. It is cutting edge. Number five, it is penetrating. The word of God is penetrating. Your Bible may actually use that word in, in, in chapter four, verse 12. Uh, the ESV, which I'm preaching from, uses the word piercing. It's the same effect. It's, it, it's literally, it's, it's in the Greek, it's cutting to the depth of your soul. It's when you're cutting a, a vegetable or cutting and you're trying to get the seeds out, it's getting down, you know, or, or to use another phrase, I never did this. I'm not afraid to admit this. I've done it before, but filleting a fish. 
Makes me want to puke every time. You're penetrating. You're cutting out. Richard does it. Richard, I know. Richard just looks at it and just flops him and goes. He's our, he's our outdoorsman here. But for most of us, that's just gross. That's why you weren't a surgeon or a nurse for most of you. But the word of God goes deeper. It penetrates. Did you see how it penetrates? Where does it penetrate? He gives you two phrases, and you should have those in your scripture. The soul and the spirit. Now, we're not going to get into trichotomy and dichotomy and unpackage that theological thing tonight. But the, the, end of the, the, the agreement that we have is this. Someday, your body is going to be laying in a ground here on this earth. Would you agree with that? You've heard me say before, the CDC says that 10 out of 10 people are going to die. That's the new guidance coming out of Atlanta. But at the end of the day, the question is, where does your soul go? Your spirit go? You die once physically, but you live forever eternally. Now, whether you believe there's a soul, a spirit, and, 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 or both, or whatever, we can debate that till the cows come home. But we all agree on this one thing. You die one time. And the question is, what is truly in your heart? And what he's telling them is, do you know Jesus? Again, are you all in? Or are you all out? And I remember there are so many times when I preached here before where someone will come up after service privately and say, have you been reading my mail? Have you been listening into my conversations? How did you know my wife has been talking to me about these? We preach the word of God, and the word of God penetrates as the spirit moves along. Us pastors don't have much head knowledge anyway, trust me. We have very little practical knowledge at times too. But the word of God rightly applied, preached, and taught by the word of God penetrates to your very soul to where it hurts. That old phrase, pastor, you preach so hard my toes hurt, is true. Because when people say that, God has been working on their hearts. Last thing is this. This is not a word that gets a lot of PC people happy, but the word of God is a discriminating word. Discriminating word. When we think discrimination, we think of, uh, and rightfully so, people should not be discriminated against if it's something proper. You know, uh, sad was the day when we had buses that housed one color and another color. God forgive us. When Christians enslaved other Christians and beat them to such a way that they were basically dead, but that's what God wants. Guys, we have a lot of history that's not good stuff. Crusades, look, we can agree with the secularists on that stuff. But one thing the word of God does is, is it judges. That's another word we don't like. Well, pastor, didn't Jesus say, judge not lest ye be judged? Yes, he did. But the Bible allows us to call a spade a spade. The Bible uses specific names of false teachers. Paul does that all the time. He says, run away from this guy. Oh, if I see this guy again, may God have justice on him. Go read the Psalms. The Psalms are very replete with, Lord, smash him in the teeth. Lord, take him out. But that's what the word of God does. It discriminates. What does it do? Look back at the end of verse 12. It judges. It reveals. It says in verse 12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged or double-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints, of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. What does the word of God really do? The heart is the real you. We can't see the real you, but God can. The heart is literally, the word judge here, the word judge here literally means that God is going to hold you accountable for everything you've thought, said, done, intended, planned, whatever. Publicly, privately, hidden, or visible. God cannot be mocked. He sees, he knows, and he will not be silent. 
God doesn't judge us, Christian. I want to remind you of this. God doesn't judge us based on our performance, but by the performance, if you will, of Jesus Christ, the work of Christ. But everywhere we are, our lives are judged by performance. But God sees the heart. First Samuel tells us that God looks not at the outside, but at the heart. Christian, you may look terrible. Your house may be a royal mess. But if your heart is set right before God, there could be no better place than you could be. And that's exactly what it is. He wants your heart. Church, we're going to ask you to consider things as we move and grow and all these things. But I want you to remember, our hearts need to be set right before God before anything else happens physically in this building or whatever else we do. Our hearts before the Lord are more important than what we may or may not do with this, that, or the other with our church in the coming years. When Saul took the sacrifice before Samuel came, he said, Samuel, I did it. I did the sacrifice. You did it. You could do it, but I did it because you were late. And God said, I don't care about sacrifice. I care what God's doing in here. If so many churches would stop worrying about how people looked, stopped worrying about how much money they're giving and first cared for their soul, everything else will fall in line according to God because it's a discriminating one. That is a faithful revelation. Are you all in or all out with the word of God is really the question. Final thing I want to share with you quickly is the fearful condemnation, the fearful condemnation. Amy, for sake of time, if you want to go ahead and put up the thing, that'd be great. Look back at verse 13. He says, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Christian, there is something to be said that the word lays you before God and brings you face to face with him. It says you're going to be naked before him. He sees all that I am, and nothing will be hidden from his sight. Proverbs 4.23 says, out of the heart comes the wellspring of life. We read a few weeks ago of Jeremiah 17.9 that our heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can understand it? Only the word of God reveals the condition of your soul. All things are open and laid bare. That word open there is literally where we get the Greek word, uh, tri- or the, the, the medical word trichotomy, or, or you know, put it another way, you ever seen those old shows where they say, speak to the king, and the, and the guard grabs him with a sword and pulls up his neck, and, and, and he can't move his neck? Literally, that word open means that God, in a spiritual sense, is going to grab you by the hair, or if you don't have any hair, he'll figure that out, I'm sure, and he's going to put the sword of the word to your neck and ask you, do you really believe that's going to happen? That sounds really crazy, doesn't it? But that's what the word of God does. Christian, if you have come to Christ, truly, God's word has already done that in your heart. God took your neck, as it were, and said, you're under my wrath. You have sinned against me. Are you in? Are you out? And you said, I believe Jesus is Savior. He's Lord. He's risen from the dead. And that sword was removed, wasn't it? The wrath of God doesn't abide on you any longer. But if you're outside of Jesus Christ, it is, as it were, as though someone has a sword to your neck, and someday God is going to judge you, and someday God must do this to conquer your soul. The question is, are you too proud to be pinned down by God? The sword on the neck or the look of a judge, this is literally another way to say it, It's, it's the look of a judge looking at you. Like, I'm about to pass sentence on you. And guys, don't forget that God is as much love as he is justice, as much wrath as he is mercy, because God is a God who does not change. 
and every non-Christian you know as a sword to their neck. And the question is, are they going to follow the double-edged sword of the word of God and humble themselves, or are they not? While there is still today, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Look, if you confess your sins and repent, he will cover you with forgiveness. But if you do not confess and hide it from him, he will uncover it one day or another. You know, in this last year and a half, two years, has it been two years since COVID hit? How many people have come out of the woodwork to say, 20 years ago, this happened to me? Or 15 years ago, this happened to me? And, and, and you know, some have been true, some have been not. I'm not here to debate the veracity of every witness. But the reality is, is some people thought that were convicted that, yeah, no one's ever going to tell me. I scared them enough. Guys, someday everything will be righted. Amen? Because of the word of God. Church, as we close, we're going to do a last song. We'll do the Lord's Supper. I want you to think about that. Are you all in for Jesus? Has his word captivated you so much that you're ready to do what he says? Are you still on that plane, kind of straddling the fence, hoping that they don't cut you in the middle, taking off? You're either in for Jesus or you're out for Jesus. But someday, Christian, you will stand in judgment. But let me remind you with the good news. Christ has already paid your judgment. He's covered you. The question will be, well done, good and faithful servant. All by grace, through faith in Christ's name. Let's pray together. Fathers, we come to you this morning. We thank you for this reminder before we take the Lord's Supper. Father, that the word of God is working the will of God in us, that you are greater than ourselves, Lord. There's nothing we can do to strive to earn our way. There's no wisdom in our heads, verse 12, that we can outmatch or outdo the word of God. And Father, there's no um, ingenuity or, or trickery that we can bring to the final judgment that is coming upon every one of us. It is in Christ and Christ alone. Father, as we sing this last song, trust and obey. May you remind our souls and refresh our souls with that truth. And Lord, as we close after that with the, the Lord's Supper, thank you for Christ taking. We pray all this in Jesus' name.